It's a rare election day in August in Ohio because of all the gerrymandering and the redistricting battles and the complete irresponsibility of Governor Mike DeWine and the others on the redistricting commission to draw fair maps. We're stuck with an August 2nd election for the state house. So get out and vote because the only way to change the supermajority that is killing Ohio is to vote. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Lisa Garvin, Layla Tassi, and Laura Johnston. I can't vote because I'm an independent. Can any of you vote? Are you guys registered? Yes. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I looked. I have really nothing to vote on. I think this might be the first election since I became a citizen in 2005 that I'm not voting because... Well, it, you have the... Oh, there's I, no there's no competition in for the, the in the primary races for the legislative district, I could if I knew anything about the state committee people. I guess I could vote on that. Yeah, but that's that's a different kind of thing. Well, in Cuyahoga County, the, re- the really the decisions are made in the primaries. But as the editor, if I'm registered in a party, it just gives ammunition to all the people yeah. that see phantoms in our coverage. So I I remain independent, and maybe someday I will once again register in a party. We got good stuff to talk about. Let's begin where we started yesterday with Deshaun Watson. When we talked about the case Monday, we had yet to see the former judge's full 16-page ruling explaining her decision to recommend a six-game suspension. Now that we have, we know she pretty much found him guilty as accused. So, Lisa, how does she explain the seemingly lenient punishment she recommended for a guy she has deemed a predator and somebody who has has actually done sexual assaults? Well, she basically, as part of her 16-page report, which is available on Cleveland.com in its entirety, um, she basically admonished the NFL because she pointed out, she took a long look, which is why I think she took so long. She looked at, you know, previous suspensions for, you know, different things like domestic violence and gendered violence. And uh, she kind of found that they... You know, first of all, she found that Deshaun Watson's conduct didn't fall into the violent category that requires a six-game minimum suspension. She also found that three games was typically the maximum penalty by NFL for prior domestic violence and assault cases. And she also said that the NFL policy was kind of squishy. She said they kind of made some after-the-fact definitions of prohibited conduct. And she said that's not fair to say that conduct is prohibited after the fact or to change penalties after the fact. So that was kind of interesting. She said that the NFL is forward facing when it comes to situations like this, but not forward looking. And she said that six games is most common for domestic violence and gender violence. Only two players have been suspended for eight games for domestic violence and assault. And I think Kareem Hunt was one of them. And then there was one 10 game suspension for multiple incidents of domestic violence. And that player later pled guilty to battery on that. So that's kind of why she made the sentence that she did. So it's a six game suspension the NFL may appeal. They have two more days to appeal. Um, she did say that, you know, this was the most significant punishment ever imposed for nonviolent sexual conduct, but Watson's pattern of conduct was more egregious than anything she'd ever seen before. 
I, we, we got to talk about this because this was not what we were expecting. The, the, the team and people around Watson had, had gone into this believing that they would get the lower end of the punishment scale because he could have had a whole season or more, the half season, and he, he got six games. So your thinking had been they must have presented some kind of exculpatory evidence in the hearing. But no, I mean, there's no sign that anybody presented anything to say he didn't do what he did. And the judge said the evidence is overwhelmingly clear that he's the creep that everybody has been describing. Somebody that went to these massage therapists to put them into the most untenable situations and commit what she described as sexual assault. So it all comes down to then the length of the the penalty. And it's odd that this rests on what's been done previously because the league has pointed out we don't have a previous case so they're they're going into some odd directions here she's saying look nfl if you want to make this a more serious kind of thing you need to do it on the front end you can't have Mm -hmm, me do it on the back end you've got to make the rules and layla this reminds me of of the old problems with cleveland police where officers would do some horrible horrible thing the city would go to discipline them and then it would always get reduced because past discipline had been so light that they went with the pattern yeah that's right i didn't hadn't even drawn that comparison but you're exactly right and it it all kind of fell back to that baseline yeah god good comparison but that's but that's government the the, the nfl is is a business they could do whatever they want i i just I, i did anybody expect that i mean she basically said guilty is charged. You're a creep. You're a guy that did terrible things to these women, put them in the worst situations possible, although you weren't violent. And so you missed six games. I mean, it just doesn't seem proportional, does it? I, I don't know. I, I, I feel like she was saying that the NFL really needs to beef up their policy. And she said that, you know, her findings, she had three findings, that the NFL met their burden of proof on, one, conduct that qualifies as sexual assault as defined by NFL policy, and uh, two, conduct that poses a danger to the safety and well-being of another person, and third, conduct that undermines the integrity of the NFL. And here, Robinson said that uh, Watson invoked his status as an NFL player when he was soliciting these massage therapists. She did note that he, you know, she had a couple of aggravating factors. She said Watson seemed to show a lack of remorse, and there was late notice of his first lawsuit to the NFL. Those were aggravating factors, but she said, Mitigating factors include that he was a first-time offender and had an excellent community reputation before all this happened. She also said he must limit his massage therapy to Browns-approved therapists only for the duration of his career. I assume that means if he gets straight into another, uh, you know, another team, and he should have no run-ins with law enforcement or additional policy violations before he gets reinstated. We should point out, we mentioned yesterday that the Cleveland Rape Crisis Center had stood largely mute on this, but they didn't stand mute on this punishment. They came out very quickly yesterday to say this, this pretty much what Layla said yesterday, this continues the rape culture. This sends a message. And, and Laura, I guess that was a national thing yesterday. There were groups coming out all over the place saying this basically allows a rape culture to exist. Absolutely. They said the sentence was way too light and they needed, you know, to send a message. And so they asking the NFL to appeal. 
Yeah, it'll be interesting to see whether they do. Does the NFL appeal and stand up for it? And that, the problem for the, the Browns is I think the way this came out, it continues the controversy. It's not that this wasn't what was portrayed. It was what's portrayed, and he'll be on the field on Game 7 unless something Honestly, changes. though, I'm so not I, sure how, how, the, how the NFL could succeed on appeal because she lays it out pretty clear that she's mm-hmm. following their policy. She talks mm-hmm. about how after the Ray Rice case in 2014, that you know that he got a two-game suspension and there was public outcry, and that's what caused the NFL to revisit their policy, and that that policy then changed to a presumptive six-game suspension without pay for certain first-time violent violent offenders. And then she lists what those violent offenses are, and this turns out not to be a violent offense. And she's saying like. I even kind of stretched the the uh, the limit of a nonviolent offense and gave him a six game suspension. And, you know, how is the NFL going to appeal it when it's their policy that she's following? She I thought she was pretty clear about it. I mean, I thought yesterday I thought six games was pretty light, but now I'm actually pretty appalled to, to look back and see how light the the suspensions have been for all these other uh guys who have who have been uh found guilty of right right that's that's the problem the nfl has a pattern of not punishing people who do egregious so things I think the, the next be- step is for the nfl to do some soul searching you know i don't know that <laughs> they're going to that they're going to prevail on appeal here this is their own policy that they're up against well you realize though the appeal is to roger goodell i mean roger goodell make if he makes a final decision that's the end of it. So if he decides, if the if the league appeals and Roger Goodell says, you know, there were so many victims here that this is different than any other case we've ever seen. So I'm going beyond what the judge said and I'm giving him a full season. That's it. They're, you know, I guess they can sue at that point. But the NFL is kind of like the, the lord and master of this thing and it's hard to overcome it. I'm with Layla, though, where they said, what is it, like domestic violence and child abuse was like a six-game suspension. I I was like, what the? Mm -hmm. And you can kind of feel that the judge herself was like, what? This is, you you guys got to get it together, NFL. You know, don't put it on me. I don't know that, (laughs) I don't think everyone's going to read the 16-page ruling, right, and see the nuance. I think there are people that are going to be like, six games, woohoo, let's get on with it. But that's why, Laura today we're going to write (laughs) that story to explain what we've been talking about we need that in our platforms it's today in ohio now that cuyahoga county has joined the 20th century and opened a central booking facility how long will it be layla before we see results well the jail started bringing crime suspects through this newly renovated space on july 22nd and as of friday they've had just shy of 450 people come through but they're still being booked through the traditional intake process and so well the point of central booking is supposed to be to reduce the jail's population by helping to release low-risk offenders on the least restrictive bonds and, you know, to match defendants up more quickly with lawyers who can represent them in their cases. And and that could help them get onto alternative dockets if they qualify for that, you know, kind of treatment and stuff like that. And this was all supposed to be up and running by the end of 2020. But COVID and supply chain, you know, I don't even need to speak in complete sentences. I just have to say those buzzwords <laughs> and people know that that means nothing got done, right? So, so here we are a couple of years later, 
At Board of Control yesterday, they said that the county will start moving Metro Health staff into, into the space this week to start conducting health screenings on each person that's brought into the jail. And then other support services are going to be added in, in the subsequent weeks. They're hoping to get the expedited booking process up and running as early as Labor Day. But that's all just to close out phase one of the construction project, which is just the primary functions of central booking. Uh, that's the temporary holding space for suspects, room for police officers to complete reports so prosecutors can make their decisions about charging, and this area for video court appearances and space for meetings with attorneys and stuff like that. But Board of Control this week approved an additional $326,000 to begin phase two. That will cover final paperwork, inspections, control changes for the Sally Port doors, that's the front door to the central booking, and, and other furnishings that weren't planned for the, the earlier phase. And that work is, is supposed to be completed by September 5th, the documents say, but the contract and the final completion date will officially extend to June 30th of next year. So, and it brings the total project cost to more than $4.1 million. Uh, so ho hopefully by by September, this place will be rocking and rolling and, and we'll start to see the benefit of this long touted, uh, uh, you know, central booking experiment. <laughs> yeah, it's money well spent. It's funny, you know, when you talk so passionately about COVID and supply chain, you almost sound like somebody that's way behind on a home renovation project. <laughs> I don't know. You can <laughs> probably hear them banging around downstairs after seven months. <laughs> You're listening to Today in Ohio. We have talked plenty this year about how the overturning of Roe v. Wade would hit low income and lower educated populations the hardest. Laura, now we have proof. What are the numbers? Right. This is a study from Ohio State published in the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology. It found that low income women with ledge education are significantly more likely to discover the pregnancies after six weeks. Obviously, that's too late now for an abortion in Ohio. About one in four patients didn't know they were pregnant before six weeks, which is actually lower than I would have thought. Uh, this was actually done before Roe versus Wade was overturned, which makes sense since that was so recent. And the point was to find out when people went to an abortion clinic, like did they go faster if they learned later in their pregnancy? But it turns out that people took about the same amount of time. And my thought is because they're wrestling with this idea. This is not something anyone takes lightly, that they need time to think about it. But obviously this has huge implications now that we have the heartbeat law in effect. Yeah, I but I like you was a little bit surprised at the the numbers that so many people are aware uh, that early because a lot of people who who oppose the heartbeat bill said most women are not aware. Right. I mean, think about two weeks is is literally when you get your period. So it's you only have like four weeks, and if making sure that if you're not a right, you don't have periods regularly. Like it would be really tough to know. I think that there's a lot of people that are trying to get pregnant that are very aware of it. But if you weren't, I mean, that, that's a big question mark. So, um, but only about 28% of abortions in 2019 happened before the six week mark in Ohio. Uh, the largest share of abortions was from week seven to nine. That was 45%. And about 89% of the survey participants had their abortion later than current Ohio law allows, which makes sense, right? Because six weeks is so early. But this was a confidential survey of about 1,100 abortion patients who consented to participate in a research study. 
So really, when women figure this out, if they want to get an abortion, they literally have days to, yeah. to make the arrangements. Because we still have the mandatory 24-hour waiting period and the two clinic visits. And obviously, there's staff shortages and high demand. I mean, the same thing we're talking about for other industries. So yeah, I mean, you have to be very on it and just decide right away and make your appointments and go. Like, there's no time for waffling here. Okay. It's today in Ohio. In recent years, I don't know that this next story would have resonated as it might this year with inflation out of control. What are the details of the sales tax holiday this weekend, Lisa, and what's covered? Yeah, the the sales tax holiday that happens every August is going to start Friday the 5th and then end on Sunday the 7th. So things that are exempt from the state and local tax include clothing, $75 or less, school supplies, and instructional materials that are $20 or less. Um, So in Cuyahoga County, with the state and local tax, that means you'll be saving 8% on all your purchases, so $0.08 on the dollar. The limits are per item. I found this interesting. I didn't know that. So if you buy six shirts at $50, which is under the $75 limit, you can buy those shirts because, you know, um, they're less than $75. So you can do that way. Not included are accessories and jewelry, athletic and protective equipment, including football and some other sports cleats and items that are used for business or trade. So get out there and shop. But I'll tell you, I was at Target the other day. People weren't waiting for it. There, there must have been, everyone in that store must have been shopping for their college age, you know, child. <laughs> It seems like this is so specifically focused on back to school that it that it's not a general sales tax holiday. It really is focused on what you saw, people getting people ready to go off to college or go back to school in the fall. Um, but this year, because prices are so high, that sales tax holiday will matter, right? Oh, absolutely. Like I said, you know, you're for every hundred dollars that you spend, you're saving eight dollars. So that's pretty good. It's one of the few times where there's a benefit to shopping in Cuyahoga County because we have the highest sales tax you can have. So you save the most money. It's today in Ohio. Speaking of spending money, what's the latest proposed spending coming from the Cuyahoga County slush funds? The $66 million that our anonymous council members salted away so each of them could have $6 million to spend on pet projects. Layla, Lucas Dupriele is doing a great job keeping everybody apprised on how they're spending this money. Yes, and they are on a roll. Don't worry about it. (laughs) They got it covered. Council members are introducing nine million dollars more in their slush fund projects as a whole they've they've almost crossed the the halfway mark of of these so-called community grants the largest proposed project would be two million dollars to restore forest hills park in cleveland heights other high ticket projects include funding for aids prevention roof repairs at a maple heights fire station security cameras for cleveland heights and and a bunch of spending on parks Uh, Lucas noted Councilman Dale Miller's really unconventional proposals. One of them is to spend $250,000 on biomimicry research through the Ohio Aerospace Institute and another $225,000 to Baldwin-Wallace University to establish the Northeast Ohio Flight Information Exchange. That's based on a Virginia program that shares information among drone operators to make drone usage safer and more organized because, you know, the pandemic really, 
really put pressure on drone operators, I guess. But Councilman Marty Sweeney is is getting in the game here, too. He's giving some cash to the general fund of the Cleveland National Air Show for some reason, a church on Denison Avenue and, and some other causes in his ward. And, um, you know, but strikingly, you know, missing from this list Councilwoman Cheryl Stevens, um, you know, she's she's the one giving two million dollars to Forest Hills Park and Cleveland Heights surveillance cameras and, and some arts programs. She's also giving to a domestic violence program and a kindergarten literacy program. But she's spending over four million dollars of her six million so far. And, and we still haven't seen that money pass through that she promised for the Cedar Road resurfacing project in University Heights. Remember that? Yeah. Yeah, that that is interesting. I wonder what you happened know, they, there. <laughs> what? what they what their projects are is interesting, but the devil is in the detail of who gets the checks, mm-hmm. which Lucas will be following up on. The the danger whenever you have individuals steering money is that they're getting it to friends that they want to benefit from the millions of dollars. And so it's one thing to say I'm putting it through putting a roof on the fire station. It's another thing to figure out which roofing company's getting it and what the ties are to the council person that was dedicating the money. And we are following that and we will be very, very focused if we find anything anomalous. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. You bet. There you go. <laughs> Lucas is on fire. This was a great get. He hasn't even been here a year and he's already made a big name for himself in journalism circles. It's today in Ohio. The Football Hall of Fame in Canton has been aiming for years to be a much bigger attraction than it was for most of history, with grand plans that included a lot of new construction. A lot of that isn't happening, but as we near induction weekend, Laura, where do all those plans stand? Well, right now it's a massive construction zone, but the stuff is coming together. There's a new football-themed zip line called the Forward Pass that's being tested. Um, they're finalizing construction of the new Center for Performance. That's a 100,000-square-foot dome space where many of the enshrinement events will be held. They're building a waterfall at the entrance. Um, but there's a lot of stuff that's not going to be done for this big weekend. Uh, the fan engagement zone with restaurants, retail, and other entertainment is still in the works. And This is happening. Susan Glaser went down, looked at it. You know, there's so many people that said, really, are you really going to do this? But some of the stuff is still dependent on financing. And because of COVID and supply chain issues, we're just going to keep saying those buzzwords. Um, they, They think that a lot of the big stuff, including a 180 room hotel and an indoor water park will be done by early 2024. That's not a done deal. The zip line was, it was fascinating to, to see the comments from the neighbor in Susan's story who's looking out her window and seeing people go whizzing by. Uh, it's a, kind of a strange downtown thing to have. Well, it's not quite downtown. And I've been there a couple of times in the last couple of years because they have massive number of fields, um, football fields, but my son plays lacrosse on them. So they've had a couple of tournaments down there and they have these beautiful turf fields in the middle of a construction zone and like surrounded by fences that you're like, okay, what's going to come there. And it's like really inconvenient to have to walk all the way around and everything from the parking lot. It's right next to McKinley high school. That's all part of the complex. So it's going to be really cool when it's all done. People are using parts of this already. Um, But yeah, I mean, they have big dreams for this and uh, hopefully the enshrinement weekend goes well and, 
they get the financing and are able to finish all this because we're talking about like $600 million just for the cost of the first two phases of the project. And that's $60 million of public money. Part of the success will be based on how well they enmesh themselves in the fabric of Northeast Ohio tourism. They're pretty mm -hmm. far south, but if right. if it's part of Destination Cleveland's presentation that this is what we have in Northeast Ohio, you you might be able to help be successful. I saw the Rock Hall is doing a promotion for induction weekend, and that's a symbiosis that could help both yeah. of them. It's really just an hour, you know, of, of and there's a lot of stuff in between from downtown Cleveland all the way to, to downtown Canton that people could stop and do. And I mean, that's a heavily trafficked area of, of 77. Um, so, and, and the, if you fly into CAK at Akron Canton airport, you're literally like two exits away. So maybe, you know, they get some more of those cheap flights that will help. Also the um, they're supposed to get one of the casino style sports betting licenses, which I think will be a huge draw. Okay. It's today in Ohio. I want to talk about this next one, Layla, for the long-range impact, less, less so for the short-range impact, but let's talk about the short-range impact. The Cleveland Museum of Art is the latest to let people know about a data breach. What happened? Yes, the museum on Thursday notified email subscribers that it, the, its service may have been compromised by a ransomware attack on its external email distribution provider, Wordfly. The museum was notified of the breach on July 15th, and they said in the statement that it involved data limited to names, email addresses, and membership IDs, levels, and expiration dates uh, where applicable. So the statement said that there's no sensitive personal information that was compromised, like credit card numbers. But the, the museum says that its cybersecurity team has followed all the protocols. They verified that there's been no suspicious activity on their systems. They say they've deactivated all WordFly-related access to their systems and that everything should be okay. They're, they're just kind of letting people know in, out of an abundance of caution uh, to be on alert and uh, to, you know, especially for those phishing attempts that might crop up from something like this. If they don't want to be in the news, they really need to remove me from the mailing list because when I get these, they become stories. But but my my question is more, what, will people, when they get enough of this and everybody's worried about having their, their numbers out there, or their accounts compromised, are people going to be less likely to share their information with things like museums and nonprofits? Are you going to find ways to protect yourself so that they, they can't leak it. I mean, if you think about how many different organizations have your private data and, and how they get breached all the time, does that eventually cause you to say, okay, I'm locking down. I'm, I'm not going to donate. I'm not going to be a member of the museum if they're not going to be able to keep my data safe. I think that's, that, I think that's absolutely a, a concern that they're facing. And, and, and I think a lot of people have reacted to to these constant data breaches in that way, uh, there. I mean, Lisa, you're sensitive to that sort of that sort of uh, mm -hmm. uh, um, pers uh, you know privacy uh, uh, concern, aren't you? Uh, I think we talked about this at editorial board recently. 
I am. I am. I like to pay cash whenever possible. And it amazes me. A lot of times where you check out at a Target or a grocery store, they'll ask you for your phone number. And it's like, no, you don't get my phone number. So it's amazing how easily people give up their information. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, uh, you know, 10% off. If you give us this, it's like, nah, I'd rather have my information protected than get 10% off on today's purchase. So yeah, I, but I, it wouldn't keep me from joining the museum. I just want to be careful, you know, who I share my data with. Well, Google has recently d provided a service where they'll show you how many different ways your email or other information has been compromised. And often with the website where it happened or it's in the dark web and some of the, the password places like Dashlane do the same. So it's more in your face. And if you ever go through that, it goes back, you know, years and you can see how many times somebody's gotten your email address or tied it to something else. And I think as that happens more and more, you might see people look for either ways to, to participate that disguises that data. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people pay for things with PayPal now and never give a company mm -hmm. their credit card number. And, you know, that's one way to protect. I just, when I saw the, the Museum of Art thing, it's okay, it's not a big deal. It, they didn't get any private data and it doesn't even look like anybody got in. But at some point, do you get saturated mm -hmm. with these notices and say, I'm done. I mean, this one I'm sounds like it's a word data. fly problem, right? That, that yeah, yeah. yeah. That it wasn't just, it wasn't like an attack on the, on this, you know, whatever internal system the museum has that keeps, you know, credit card numbers and things like that, that it's just the email distribution provider, uh, word fly that's having a problem. Um, so I think people can kind of parse that out. Uh, in this particular case, but yeah, it's just an uneasy world to be in. Um, personally, I hate that everyone has your email address and then you can't, you're just bombarded constantly. What anytime you, you try to, you know, you try to give money to a cause and then you're just blasted with emails from, from all sides. So that's the part that annoys me. Um, but you know, yeah, it's like it's like the robocall exactly we talked like about that. last week. Once you answer it, you're done. You get a I million know. more. Don't you ever go through like your inbox just like and be like unsubscribe, oh, unsubscribe, yeah. unsubscribe, I, and it I like do it feels all the time. so like freeing. And at some point, I do it automatically now. When something shows up unsolicited, I unsubscribe, and if it doesn't unsubscribe, I, I report it as spam because I tend to do it around Christmas because like every day it's like another sale, and you're like, I don't want to buy anything. I know else. you have to kind of set up a separate email account for that garbage, you know, and exactly. Right. Yeah, right. So you're disguising yourself, which is what we're talking about. <laughs> anyway, that's what I wanted to talk about it. The bigger ramifications. It's today in Ohio. Lisa, we're not going to get to the dropping gas prices before they probably go up again. But we we should point out they did get under four dollars. That was something we were going to talk about, but we're out of time. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens. We'll be back Wednesday to talk about some more news.